Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Talking Tudors, episode 139. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, let me begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website on thetudortrail.com or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. December's prize is a Tudor Rose Collection Candle Package, sponsored by Cleo Global. Cleo's Tudor Rose Candle recreates the aromas of the Tudor Court. This month's Talking Tudors patron prize will feature a Tudor Rose Candle, along with art prints of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, created by Cleo Partner Royalty Now. All patrons can also attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. At the end of December, I'll be chatting to Tracy Borman about her new book, Crown and Scepter, and much more. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for this event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. I'd also like to take this opportunity to share that I'll be taking part in two virtual conferences in February and early March. Dr. Owen Emerson and I will be giving a joint presentation at the Writers' Convention 2022, hosted by the History Quill. This five-day virtual convention for historical fiction writers will run from the 2nd to the 6th of February on Zoom. There will be multiple events held on each day and the great thing is that you can attend all five days or only one or two depending on what your interests are. Our presentation entitled The Real Tudors is on day five, the 6th of February. I'm also thrilled to share that I'll be taking part in an upcoming online conference about Anne Boleyn hosted by Claire Ridgeway. It consists of eight Berlin experts, seven days of online talks and exclusive live Q&A sessions. On day four, the 3rd of March, Sarah Morris and I will be giving a talk entitled In the Footsteps of the Early Years of Anne Boleyn, 
For more information on these events, please visit my website www.onthetudortrail.com. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about William Cecil is David Lee. David was born in Dublin, Ireland. He grew up in Wicklow Town in County Wicklow. David has always had an interest in history, but his interest in British history really began as a teenager, when he was still in secondary school. His history teacher was the first person to mention the name Anne Boleyn, which led to a lifelong obsession with the Tudors and to studying history at university. David specialises in women's history and pays particular attention to women in power from the 15th to the 19th centuries. His MA thesis discusses female inheritance and land ownership and mental illness during the Industrial Revolution in Britain. He's also interested in the history of courtship, marriage and courtesans. His first non-fiction book, which is yet to be published, is about Elizabeth I's courtship with the Duke of Anjou. He's also recently been commissioned to write a biography about William Cecil, Lord Burley, Chief Advisor and Secretary of State to Queen Elizabeth I. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Welcome to Talking Tudors, David. How are you? I'm very good, Natalie. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so excited. I've been looking forward to this. So I suppose a really good place to start is just by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background. Yeah, sure. So my name is David Lee. I live in Dublin, Ireland. Um, I grew up in a small town called Wicklow. And I suppose I've always had an interest in history. But my, my interest in British history really began as a teenager. Now, my dad is British. Uh, my mom is Irish. So I grew up with, you know, an influence and interest in, in both of our histories. But when I went to school, secondary school as a teenager, my history teacher, who happened to also be my my mom's friend, was the first person who kind of mentioned tutors or Anne Boleyn uh, to me. And this really led to my obsession with the tutors. And so even though I went on to study other things afterwards. I did go back and I studied history at uh, Midwest University in Kildare. I undertook a Bachelor of Arts in History and then I immediately enrolled in a, a master's degree in Irish history, although that kind of, I linked in my love of British history with it. After graduating, uh, or after after finishing my thesis, I just say, I actually have not graduated as of yet, just yet. I suppose after um, finishing my thesis, I really kind of wanted to broaden my horizon. And so now I'm kind of um, studying different topics. I'm going into different topics, not only because I do study women's history, um, mostly, 
for example, as part of my MA thesis, I discussed female inheritance, land ownership, and mental illness. So um, I've started to really look into other things, into into not only into women's history and social history, but um, the history of politics and and how that influenced society and the societies that the people we study lived in at the time. Yeah, I love how one thing always leads to another, doesn't it? I, I often say that's it. it. Does, I'm not looking yeah. into any other period and then something else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, like I did my undergrad thesis on Anne Boleyn and her impression of her in the modern age. And I suppose how she's how we perceive her due to, you know, um, film, novels. And um, really, I kind of stripped that back and went back to what it really is about and her downfall and um, what we can really take that from a historical point of view, an accurate historical point of view. And I thought I would stick with the tutors. And I really thought that it, it would just be the tutors. And even though now I, I am sticking to the tutors in my work, um, I, I kind of veered a little bit forward into the 19th century. And I, I loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. And um, I have plans to, to do more of that. And you're also currently writing and researching and writing, I should say, a book about William Cecil. Is that right? I am indeed, yes. So, yeah, William Cecil was always an enigma to me. So um, when I was asked or approached or I suppose you could say commissioned to uh, write a biography about him and his his family and his legacy, um, it wasn't that I was surprised, but, I mean... for me, it, it was a cha- it's a challenge, but I'm really, really enjoying it. The research part for me is, is always the most exciting part of um, the process. And then when I, when I get to writing, it really just, for me, it really just flows. And I just really, really enjoy the process. And I'm at that stage now where I feel like I, I kind of really get him. I, I At the start, I was kind of bewildered by him. And through research and actually writing, the more you write, the more you research, the more you learn. And... Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm really enjoying the process right now. We're going to actually focus today on William Cecil. And can you we tell <laughs> us a little bit, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about his family and his early life? Yes, I can. We all know who William Cecil is, firstly. If if, if we love the Tudors, we love Elizabeth, we love, you know, we love Henry VIII and, and the, the reigns of the Tudors. We know who William Cecil is, but I think a lot of us don't really know who he really is who the man is and where did he come from so William was born at Bourne and I, I hope I'm saying that right because I am Irish but he was <laughs> born at Bourne in Lincolnshire on the 13th of September in 1520. Now his birthplace has been a topic of debate amongst historians but based on my research I can safely say that he was likely born on the Heckington family estate of Bourne because he was baptized there and in Tudor times they didn't waste time in <laughs> baptizing their babies after they were born because you know infant mortality uh, was, was so high. His father was Sir Richard Cecil and his mother was Jane Hackington. Now it's interesting that William he's a Lincolnshire man true and true and he's an Englishman true and true we know this we know this from looking at his uh, his career under Elizabeth but we, lots of people don't actually know that. Though an Englishman, a staunch Protestant Englishman to the bone, William was actually, he, he came from a family that originated from the Welsh marches. The name Cecil is actually an Anglicized, Anglicized version of uh, Cecil, or Cecil um, which is, I hope I'm saying that right again as well, because I don't speak Welsh. I often wondered about how a man of Welsh origin became the de facto most powerful man in England during the Elizabethan period. And... We also have to remember that the Tudors had a Welsh heritage and that Elizabeth's great-great-grandfather, Owen Tudor, was actually a Welsh courtier. William's grandfather, David Cecil, 
was the second son of Richard Cecil or Cecil or whatever way that you would pronounce it. There's many, many different ways of pronouncing the name, even during the Tudor period. He really began, David Cecil, the family's service to the crown during the reign of the first Tudor monarch. And he was a client of Lady Margaret Beaufort. We all know who she is, uh, the, fa- the mother of Henry VII and really the matriarch of the, the Tudor dynasty. And then David was also elected to Parliament Parliament many times during the reigns of Henry VII and also Henry VIII. He had a very long life. But it's really William's father, Richard, that paved the way for the success of what I call, and in my in my research, in my book, of what I call the Cecil dynasty. So due to David Cecil's influence at court, Richard Cecil became a page in the chamber of Elizabeth's uh, father, Henry VIII and later Yeoman of the Wardrobe. And he had a stream of different um, positions during this period, but those were his most important positions and activities, I suppose, during the reign uh, of Henry VIII, his early reign, and also before he was king. William's mother's family, they're, they're also an interesting family uh, because we rarely get to see you know, any information about um, women and the mothers and, and where they come from and the influence of, of their families. But we do have a lot of information about his mother's family. Um, they're, they, they're members of an elite class in Thorne in Lincolnshire. And this is where William's life began. So they obviously had a great influence in, on his life. And um, the Heckingtons were, they were successful town councillors. They were traders, they were landowners. And um, his grandmother's family, for example, were merchants. So they had great influence in their area where William grew up. And so I think it's really important to note that though his paternal line really, really paved the way for the, for the Cecil dynasty, a lot of the influence in terms of business and, and how um, William conducted himself and how, I suppose, how warm he was actually, which is another thing we'll come to, which I want to discuss, came from his mother's side. And so that family is just as important as the Cecil. The Cecils, they're rarely remembered for their service to the royal family, besides that of William's service to the crown, obviously during Elizabeth's reign. But his grandfather lived, he lived a rather unique life. So he died sometime between 1536 and 1540. He lived quite a long life. It's not really set in stone of when he passed. But for me, based on William's writings and based on uh, the study of others, um, I can safely say it's, it's sometime around 1540. So this is interesting because this is well into and way beyond Henry VIII's great matter, you know, where he, he basically divorced Catherine of Aragon and he married Anne Boleyn and the scandal that followed and her, the Boleyn's downfall. But after all of this, you know, the, the Cecils, despite um, the, the turbulent times and the swapping and the changes, they remained safely in the household of the king. And Henry VIII even remembered Richard Cecil in his will. So... In terms of William's childhood, he was one of four children. He was the only son in the Tudor period. You're the only son. You have you have a lot expected of you. You, you have a lot on your shoulders. And unfortunately, we know very little of the life of young William Cecil. We do know he had a, a very pleasant relationship with his daughter, uh, with his sisters, Margaret, Elizabeth and Anne. But it's really likely that he had a, a lonely childhood until he intended uh, attended the good grammar school in Stamford. This is when his, ma- his family moved to Stamford. And I think it's Alan Gordon Smith who commented that William was a serious child, played no games, but he was also a delicate child. He was sensitive as well. But in reality, we really can't know for sure whether this is true. And we can't really know whether the later characteristics of this great statesman were natural to him 
or whether they were influenced based on his education later on. It's really hard to tell, but regardless of this, his early education and his hunger for knowledge definitely were the basis of for his rise to power and the essence of his his dynasty that will come later. So I don't think William's childhood should necessarily be the means of the way we understand it as an adult. And we do have this modern sense that kind of based our interpretation or understanding of people based on, you know, nurture, how they how they're understood as adults is based on on their their childhood. But I mean, we have to remember William's religiosity and his ideology toward governance and family life and all of these things, they can't really be based on the the turbulent time of Henry VIII, the mid reign of Henry VIII and the turbulent the turbulence of that and and how the kingdom was then governed because he was quite young. And so I think it will be his later teenage years, particularly those at college, that would really have a real impact on the man that William Cecil became. Yeah, it's so fascinating to hear all those details because, of course, they're not, you know, we don't often hear about them. And what year did you say he was born, David? Uh, 1520, 13th of September, 1520, yes. So he was, uh, he would have been 13 years older than Elizabeth. Yes, yeah. So yeah, he he so would have remembered those times quite well, though, which is interesting. He, he yeah he he would have remembered those times. I mean, I think it's pretty much the last couple of years during Henry VIII's reign, for example, that he 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 you know he goes to college and he he starts to um really starts to understand what those what uh, Protestantism is and how it can benefit him and how his own understanding of religion and and the world. And so it, it's funny that he lived through all of that. Well, his childhood was quite sheltered from that. So, I mean, did his family were at court, but he, he himself wasn't. So that's why I really think it's his later years at college that influenced who he became rather than that period. Yeah, it's good to um, picture him young as well, isn't it? Because I think most people it's, immediately yeah. picture the portraits from later and that's the image. See, this is the thing. <laughs> this is what I'm trying to get through in my in my book, my research that, you know, we, we think of William, you know, he's really cold, he's really staunch, he's just, you know, he's the cold secretary, you know, he's all about power and, and he's all about both protecting the English state. And yes, he is, he is that, he he definitely is, but there's so much more to him. And this is the very human thing about, about it, because we don't really tend to sit back and think, well, these are people. So yeah. yes, yes, he, he's a staunch Protestant by the, by the time Elizabeth comes to the throne and by the time of, for example, the Spanish Armada, yes, it's his life obsession to protect the, the English state and to secure the Tudor dynasty. But he's also, he, he's much more than that. He's, he's a man, he's a family man, he's a husband, he's a friend. And so I think that's what I want people to see. I want people to understand him the way I now understand him. Yeah, well, that sounds really wonderful because I think sometimes we just reduce people from the past to to kind of shadow the sort of themselves, yeah. don't we? Or I like mean, cardboard it, cutouts. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it is that. It's very much that, and I think we tend to do that with Elizabeth as well. Elizabeth is, I, you know, she's an an enigma in her own way, and um, we see her as Gloriana, for example, the glorious Virgin Queen. And and though I'm not saying she wasn't. <laughs> the Virgin Queen, um, from my point of view, she certainly was. But she she's much more than that. She's a woman. She's a friend. She's a, she's a daughter, as some said. She's a sister. She's she has emotions. We we all know Elizabeth had <laughs> was very <laughs> emotional. So that's what I want. That's what I find important about about these people is is bringing their humanity to the surface. 
Absolutely. And and you mentioned when you were discussing um, Cecil's upbringing and, and his education, yeah. that there's obviously factors there that led or that paved the way to his power. So can you tell us a little bit more about yeah. that journey? Yeah, I mean, again, for me, William's path to power really began when he uh, attended, when he went up to St. John's in Cambridge. He was about 15 or 16 years old. Now, a lot of people now would think that's quite young to send your child to college, 15 or 16. Usually we, we you know, it's about, what, it's about 18 for most people. Well, 15 is, it's a bit of a stretch, but we have to remember in the Tudor period, again, it's, it's quite different. You, you weren't considered a child after 11, 12, you're, you're on your way to manhood. And so by 15, 16, it's acceptable for him to, to attend Cambridge. And it was at Cambridge that William made the most important connections, I think of his life, which would sow the seeds for his family life, his political career, his later rise to power. And I suppose he showed great promise from the start and he had a great hunger for knowledge. Um, he, was always, he always wanted to know more, even, even in his old age. And it has often been suggested that his, I suppose how we see him now, his intelligence, his academic ability, his shrewdness as a politician are or were mythical. But I, I don't think this is necessarily true. I, do, I don't see his abilities as mythical at all. I, I really see William as a real genius for the time. And um, I mean, by the time he was 19, he could speak Greek in a natural manner. Um, he was comfortable as, as he was speaking English. And this is according to his earliest anonymous biographer. So th- this is someone who wrote about William's life after he died, but knew him during life, or so we think. This is interesting, his love of languages and particularly Greek, because this is something he had in common with Elizabeth. Elizabeth herself, as we know, had a talent for speaking multiple languages. And William, he had such a hunger for knowledge during his life that it really impacted on his health. And I don't know if this is true for Elizabeth, because other things impacted her later health in her life. But for William, he woke every morning really, really early, even when he, by the time he was an, an old man sometimes as early as four, three, four in the morning. Um, and this is, again, according to his early anonymous biographer. By the way, I think this biographer was likely a servant or a clerk in his household. But anyway, the biographer mentioned that his lifestyle um, and therefore his lack of sleep contributed to his later peril of um, health because, uh, as we know, William suffered from, from bad health towards the end of his life, and it was, it was quite bad. For me, I think his grandfather was his, uh, his greatest influence at this time. So he grew up knowing that his grandfather was a great man. He was favoured by the king, as was his father. And so by the time he went up to Cambridge, he, he sees his grandfather as this great man. He wants to emulate him. And he did carry out his father's caution towards ambition because his father was always very cautious about rising too high because we know what happens during the reign of Henry VIII when you rise too high. Yes, so though he would have outwardly appeared to oppose this, he wished to make his family proud. For example, when his grandfather dies, he's likely devastated because this is the man that he wishes to emulate. This is the man that he he sees as, I suppose, the goal to become in life. This is, for him, this, this is who he wants to emulate. And we don't have a record of his emotional reaction to this. And this is the problem with William Cecil, as I was saying before, that we, we don't know a lot about his emotions. We, we, we don't know how he felt about a lot of things. He definitely felt them. But unfortunately, we don't have the record of that. He did keep what, what we would call a diary, a journal, memorandum, 
but he's he's not very detailed. He's not very specific. He he records dates of when things happened or his attitude towards something. But he doesn't really record his emotions. And it's interesting because the families, uh, the Cecil family, were a very close knit family. They lived a very normal life for their elite class for the period. The the closeness actually would have had a profound effect on William's later family life because his later family life was actually very successful and very happy. And though that's not unusual for the period, it's just with William Cecil, people can't really comprehend that behind his shrewd nature and his duty to the Elizabethan state, that he actually had a really happy uh, family life and, and children that he adored. It was during his time at Cambridge that he really became interested in the reformed faith. And this is really important for later on during uh, Elizabeth's reign. Despite his hunger for knowledge, he also had time to make friends during this first year at Cambridge. And these friendships would, some of them at least, would last for the remainder of his life or their lives. William Bill, in particular, uh, known as the Protestant divine, um, later, sir, uh, later worked in the service to William in his household when William became Lord Burley in 1571. However, the most poignant friendship, I think, was with John Cheek or Czech. I'm going to say Cheek because I believe that is how it was said, but some will say Czech. <laughs> John Cheek was a, uh, he was a fellow student um, of the classics and he also had a friendship with a man called Thomas Smith, later Sir Thomas Smith. And he would also later play an important role in William's life. So at this time, these men, they're, they're forming friendships, they're, they're, they're learning languages together, they're discussing life and, and what the world will, may be for them. What are they going to do with their careers? How are they going to carve out their lives? And at this time, it's probably by around 1540, Protestantism is sweeping across England. The old ways of, I suppose, the Catholic Church They've really lost their charm. So these young men wanted to become a part of something new, exciting, something they could really get their teeth into. And William found the writings of Martin Luther, and he found these particularly intoxicating. And he really didn't, I mean, this, this isn't random, his interest in, in the Protestant faith. So his father, Richard, was actually, he was probably one of England's earliest reformers. And we don't really know how far back this goes, whether this predate is Henry VIII, you know, Henry VIII's kind of reformation, the dissolution of the monasteries, we're not sure. But certainly his father had, had an influence on him as well. But it's when he goes to Cambridge and starts to see other people with these ideas that he's like, wait a minute, this is something that I can really get into. And so not only is it conditioned in him, likely from his father, but then it's influenced on him from those around him at college. And I suppose you have to remember, William's father would have benefited greatly from the dissolution of the monasteries. He would have gained new land, new wealth, and this was to be William's inheritance, technically. So, of course, why wouldn't he be interested? And this is probably the most important time of William's life, also because this is where he meets his first wife. And not only does he meet her while he's at Cambridge, but she's also the sister of his new best friend, John Cheek, so Mary Cheek. And this caused an absolutely massive rift between William and his father, Richard. Richard was, you know, at, at this time, he, I suppose he um, really felt that the Cecils were too good for the Cheeks and that the Cheeks were too 
lowly born to equal that of the Cecils, simply because how his family had been elevated from his father's service to the tutor. Um, if it had have been 100 years before, <laughs> um, it might have been very different. So this created a scandal in the Cecil household. So he even removed William from St. John's to grade in some months later in 1541. And this is really interesting to me because the Cheeks were by no means, they were not by no means lowly to the extent that Richard Cecil presumed. William was by this time 20 years old. And I suppose with the sweeping reformation um, coming across England at this time, sweeping across England, and he's forming his own ideas, I suppose he felt he knew his own mind. And this actually was a love match. And this says a lot about William the man because not only is he showing that he knows his own mind but he willing to cause a little bit of a rift and disgrace within his own within his own family and when we think of William later he's so staunch he's so you know he's so cool and collected and wouldn't want to come across uh, as uh, disobeying the laws of the land or how things work or or how society functions but when he's 20 years old he he does just that and so I definitely think it was a love match. I don't think it was, I don't think it was simply out of spite for his family or anything like that. I simply believe he, he knew who he was and he knew he wanted to be and he knew he wanted Mary by his side. By the family's disapproval, he married her in, I think it's in August of 1541. And he did record this in his diary. And I believe he never, ever regretted his marriage to Mary. So in 1542, luckily for him, um, probably, it's probably softened his father a little bit, Mary gave birth to a son, the future Thomas Cecil, and he later became the Earl of Exeter, I believe. So he would carry on the Cecil name, the dynasty, in a sense. But unfortunately, and this is very, this is very actually sad, and Mary died only some months later in February of 1543. And obviously this um, devastated William but he, he did carry on, you know, um, I think this is where we kind of get the, you know, the, the British upper lip, you know, you, you carry on, you get on with it. It's, it's devastating, but he, he had um, a son to think of and he had a career to carve out. So that was devastating for him. He, he got on with it. It's when his brother-in-law, uh, John, became a tutor to Prince Edward, later Edward VI, that William, I'm not saying that he, he was particularly envious, although he, he may have been. But this was something that William himself wanted. He wanted a position like this. He knew his family had influence and he knew it was possible. But William was some years younger than, than John, John Cheek. And so he had to make due with a seat on the borough in the Common Court of Peace in winter. Now, this was by no means a low position. I think it was the start. It was the start for him. And it was due to his father's position, really, that helped him along the way in the 1540s, especially after the tragedy of losing a wife and having a young son. I think he needed something substantial. And so this is where he really begins to piece together a political career. And then uh, he decides to marry again in 1545 to a woman named Mildred Cook. And she's the daughter of Sir Anthony Cook. And this is important because this elevated William's status further at court. Allowed him some, I suppose, precedent at court. I don't believe it was initially a love match. I think this was calculated. This was intended for simply to, to help him along in, to elevate him, help him along in his career. But not so obviously. I suppose Mildred was said to be a great beauty for the period. The family were influential. They were wealthy enough. 
And this is when William's new connections to like-minded Protestant men allowed him, because this is a, a, you know, a court, he's able to be introduced to more people of upper society. And so this is what really allows him to carve out a political career. And so it's during this time, shortly after his, his second marriage, where he starts to befriend Lord Edward Seymour, Earl of Hertford, and later the Duke of Somerset and the Lord Protector over uh, Edward VI. Now, there's no real record of when they became friends, but I think due to brother-in-law's position teaching Edward VI in his household, that somehow, because the Duke of Somerset is, you know, he's Edward's uncle, William came into contact with him there and some sort of conversation must have been struck up and they would have known who the Cecils were because their family were, were, were courtiers technically. And by the time he's 27, he secured a position in the new Lord Protector's section or faction, if you want to, if you want to call it that, because obviously when um, Henry VIII dies in 1547, making the young Edward King, Edward VI. And so really, this is when he starts to kind of move up further and further. And so you can slowly see him as time goes on, kind of getting a leg up bit by bit by bit by bit. And I think he was likely giving a a kind of minor role initially in the Lord Protector's um, household. And that's where he really started to show who he was, what he was capable of. And this is where he forms his ideology towards policy and really his interest in administrative issues. He's no longer a bystander. He's no longer um, a young man at college. He's no longer the, 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 you know, the, the son of an influential man. He is becoming an influential man. And this is very important. And so it's through this connection that he became a favourite of the Dowager Queen, Catherine Parr. And he even wrote the introduction of her Lamentations of a Sinner, <laughs> much to dismay of Bishop Gardner, who hates Catherine and dislikes William. But by 1545, uh, he became the protector's, uh, sorry, 1548, sorry, became the protector's secretary. And this really serves as William's education for his later position as secretary to Elizabeth I. And he later sat uh, in Edward VI's first parliament. So this this is his moment. The moment he sits in, in, in parliament and he's, he's there, his path to success and power for him were secure or, or or so he so he thought (laughs) never totally secure at the judah court i don't think but um (laughs) um no well uh uh, unfortunately uh nothing at the judah court is ever secure i I suppose william's career probably was the most Mm. secure once um elizabeth came to the throne but it was precarious for a time (laughs) yeah you know what i was just thinking some interesting parallels there between his sort of early life and and the beginning of his career and thomas cromwell's i thought they're very I, I often, yeah. Yes, I often see a parallel. Thomas Cromwell, you know, he he is he isn't born into a family like Williams, no. but there's a difference. Um, the the that that's really the only difference. And I I think the important thing to see between men at this period is is not their not necessarily only their position that they're born into. It's 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 how they carve out their own career and how they make the mark them, themselves. And Cromwell is a perfect example of that. Of of it doesn't matter. If you if your father is is ennobled or a member of the king's household, it doesn't matter. And William is very aware of this. William just uses that 
as a as a I suppose as a as a way of getting in. It's by no means the reason why he grew so high, why he became so influential. That is really down to William's genius, his own genius. I believe it's not down to who he was born. You know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And even in terms of the personal tragedy, Thomas Cromwell lost his wife and two daughters prior to entering Henry. Yeah, so that's interesting too, isn't it? It is interesting because I think that triggers something in Cromwell as well. Yes, I do too. And I'm not saying that that's completely parallel to William, but I think he obviously felt so mad in love that he was willing to push his family away and really, really risk his um any possibility of him stepping into his grandfather's shoes and his father's shoes and then it must be it's been so devastating to just to lose that to lose that that the, the woman that he felt he would spend hopefully the rest of his life with and you know the woman that gave him a son that gave him a, a, a dynasty of his own um, and so it is really sad but by the time he marries Mildred I think he's he's very much so he's like okay this is it this is this is how I'm going to be. And Dodie eventually, I believe, fell in love um, and had a very happy, successful marriage. At the beginning, I don't think it's like that at all. I think for William, this is, this is him simply being advantageous. Yeah, and interesting also that he's not a spring chicken when he, <laughs> he arrives at court. He, so he, I always find that not, interesting as well. Um, yeah, so- he's, he's, he's not. So let's hear a little bit more, you know, he's formulating a lot of his ideas and, as you said, his approach to policy and those sorts of things. So tell us a little bit about his approach to governance and maybe some more of his personal sort of beliefs about religion and, if if we move into Elizabeth's time, uh, supporting Elizabeth's legitimacy as well. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. Um, William's approach to how he, I'm I'm really noting this, how he governed England, his personal convictions, his religious belief and his support of of Elizabeth and her legitimacy as queen and her right to be queen. This had so much to do with his years of service under Edward Seymour, the Lord Protector, and also the Earl of Warwick, later the Duke of Northumberland. He managed to uh, navigate the murky waters of politics during the Protectorate. Um, John Dudley, in particular, was also a man of staunch Protestant conviction. But when friction between Seymour and Warwick began due to Seymour's ever-growing power, William's position really became a little bit precarious because Edward Seymour, it seems, uh, forgot that he was actually, in fact, not the king. Uh, his nephew was <laughs> and he was deposed and arrested in 1549 as we know many of his household actually joined him in the Tower of London and this is something people don't know so did William Cecil and um, yeah William Cecil was also imprisoned in the Tower of London although it was, it was a short amount of time but he was and so William like later like Elizabeth later had a taste of what mm. what could happen and so Luckily, when Warwick became the de facto regent of Edward VI in early 1550, although by this time the young king was also already forming his own ideas towards um, policy uh, and religion, uh, he, he was highly intelligent. Obviously, Seymour is the king's uncle, and so there's already trouble with Thomas Seymour going on by, you know, by 1548. So, I mean, you, you, can't, you, you can't kind of, I suppose, put both brothers into a box and say that they were both terrible and wanted to destroy their nephew or or completely seize control but I think it did definitely got both both of their heads a little bit but luckily he's released and with him is William and William remained in his service until the latter's second arrest in 1551 
Edward Seymour, as you know, was executed in 1552 on charges, charges of treason. But again, William is lucky. And for some reason, Warwick needed, knew he needed a man like him. He had shown that he could not only prevail through storms brought on by warring factions of the boy king's court, but I suppose by this time, he could also show that he could prosper despite imprisonment and despite the, the disgrace of that imprisonment. I think it's really important to make note of his loyalties, not only with the individual protector, but more so with the state and the sovereign alone. It doesn't matter who the protector is. Yes, he's friends with them. Yes, he's willing to do the work. But for him, it's about the state alone. It's about how England is governed. It's even suggested that though he, I suppose, was so loyal to to the state and to the sovereign alone, behind all this, there are friendships that, he must have that must have made him absolutely devastated with with the death of of Edward Seymour. He was really good friends with Seymour's wife. She knew him personally really really well, and she later wrote to him, um, telling him that she knew that despite everything, she knew um, that he had nothing to do with her husband's downfall, even though he was elevated again when war became the de facto protector. So by the time Mary comes to the throne. William had already shown he was a survivor. The Earl of Warwick's placement of his daughter-in-law, we know, uh, Lady Jane Grey, on the throne after the death of the young king. Uh, we know this was a disaster and that uh, Mary, in the end, she, she triumphed over Lady Jane Grey and her claim. And it's interesting because, you know, this, is, this all comes from the king's device. This all comes from what we think was um, Edward's device or what Edward wanted. And, and we can't be sure whether it really is what Edward wanted. Um, certainly the king's signature and seal or whatever is there. But who, who was really running things at this stage and who really was, uh, who really had this device created? You know, that, that's up for um, speculation. But he did put his name to the device, unfortunately. And um, that being Edward's will leaving the throne to Lady Jane Grey and therefore bypassing Mary and Elizabeth due to their apparent legitimacy. So in one sense, we're seeing William betray the legitimacy of Elizabeth at the, at the very beginning. And that's really, that's really interesting because later he was, he was really, really flocked to Elizabeth once he knew she was going to be queen, become queen. He, he was very, very quick to turn when, it, when he knew it was time to turn to the next person he, he, for some reason, he was so shrewd, he knew how to get away with disloyalty to one person, uh, switch to another person, and then back again if necessary. So Mary, obviously, you know, she was uh, triumphant. She became queen. Um, and she also noted William's talent and genius. And though she knew him to be a Protestant, she chose to pardon him, even though he put his name to the, to the device. And his reasoning for this was that the king forced him, the, the king ordered him to. And this may be likely, but I mean, for William, obviously, what, what was it going to be? A Catholic queen or a Protestant queen? Of course, he was going to sign, you know, the, the, the vice. But he knew when the tides were changing and when the wind was blow, blowing in favour of Mary, that he had to switch sides and he had to do it very quickly. He rallied behind Mary then very, very quickly. In one sense, we can see William's sense of duty to the crown as he later wholly supported Mary's claim once he knew her victory was imminent. But we can also see his staunch Protestant beliefs emerge because though he rallied behind Mary when he knew that the Protestant Lady Jane Grey was not going to stay queen 
he actually declined to serve a, a Catholic queen as secretary. He said that he would happily serve the queen, of course, but he served God first. And she didn't do anything about it. He kind of went off to, to his home and he was al- able, allowed to kind of quietly go away. And he didn't go away entirely. He was uh, on Parliament, in the, he says, anyway, in his memoranda in 1553. But this is this poignant. He served God first. And so it shows he's not, he's not afraid of, of showing who he really is, even if that meant that, you know, he might be reprimanded by the Queen for that. But it's interesting because by this time, he had already made friendly connections with the Princess Elizabeth. Now, we're not sure, and I'm not sure, when William and Elizabeth first met. His friend, Roger Ashton, was her tutor. So their first encounter may have been when Elizabeth was quite young. She may have been a child, um, but really, we, we, we don't know. But for William, he was far too important to just, I suppose, fade into obscurity during Mary's reign, early reign. And though he was not um, her secretary, he, he remained around. He, he, he did go away for a while, but he remained around afterwards. And he eventually offered his services to the um, Lady Elizabeth and he managed a portion of her estate. So the, the, the land, the finances, whatever you have it. And this really gave him something to do. And so this is really where William and Elizabeth relationship the one that we see when she becomes queen began is when he's managing her estate and i suppose he would have known that by the end of mary's reign she was you know she was childless unfortunately failed to give england an heir and so he knew that elizabeth was going to be the next queen and he knew that his dutiful service to the princess will be remembered and it's it's interesting this says so much about william because as mary the first queen of england still lay dying by 1558. William and a number of other courtiers made their way to Elizabeth's residence at Hatfield to pledge their loyalty and respect to her, the new queen. She wasn't, I mean, Mary wasn't even dead. But Elizabeth formed a small council immediately on becoming queen, and um, which William was to be the head. And she made him her secretary of state, which she wholeheartedly accepted. And here we get a real we get a great deal of understanding of who William was as he had already drawn up uh, a document before Mary's death, uh, while Mary was dying, before he had gone to Elizabeth at Hatfield, he'd already drawn up a document to guide her in her new role as queen. Really, we really see who he is. He's, he's able to quickly see an opportunity and move towards it without regret, without, without hesitation. And here his ambition is evident and his approach is really, really simple. He didn't seek reward for his loyalties in terms of wealth or title, but it's really his vision, his now vision for a Protestant England and a Protestant England now that could be securely imagined now in the name of Elizabeth. Yeah, as you're talking, I I had different words popping into my head. I was thinking, wow, he was incredibly shrewd, as you said, but also a visionary. Obviously, his vision was incredible. And just that sort of forward thinking, forward planning, and very pragmatic, obviously, (laughs) incredibly pragmatic, because he's... um, Extremely pragmatic. Um, As you say, he has his... his convictions, but he's he knows how to bide his time and 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 wait. I suppose. And he knows how to watch and wait. I yeah. mean, and for example, Stephen Alfred's book and the Watchers. You know, I, I mean, that's really what he was. He 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 knew exactly what was going to come, and he whether he would have been wrong or not, he didn't hesitate. He he knew he had to act, and he did. And luckily for him, it it usually paid off. 
Yeah, very lucky. <laughs> very lucky. <laughs> very, very lucky uh, considering. <laughs> so I, I want to fast forward a little bit into Elizabeth's reign now. And of course, yeah. you know, the question of the Queen's marriage, goodness knows how many hours were spent discussing it at court and in her <laughs> council. So just just briefly, tell us what was Cecil's uh, attitude towards the Queen's marriage, I suppose? Where did he stand? I suppose William was initially too busy in the early months of Elizabeth's ascension to consider finding her a husband, a suitable husband. He really, really had to concentrate on not only her legitimacy and I suppose forming the how how it would work in the early reign, but he also had to really fix the financial state of the country, which was absolutely perilous at the time. So it's only some months after he's sorted that by 1559 that he decides okay, we, we, we need to do something about the Queen's marriage. We need to find her a suitable, a suitable husband, a suitable match. And I think this is really, really triggered by Elizabeth's favouritism for Lord Robert Dudley and son of John Dudley or uh, Warwick, as I referred to him before. So he, he really became a concern for the council and, and for the commons and, and particularly for William Cecil. The Queen was openly, you know, she openly favoured him. There was rumours, of course, that he was, you know, her, already her lover. And, and this is something that stuck for much of Elizabeth's reign. But unfortunately for Elizabeth, um, but I suppose luckily for uh, William Cecil, um, Robert Dudley was already married to Henry Robsart. And it was clear to all that Elizabeth was in love with Dudley. Although I think it took William a while to catch on. William was a man who, for example, he never took a mistress. He was wholly dutiful in both loyal as a husband. So William really couldn't comprehend love outside of marriage or I suppose he couldn't really understand Elizabeth's feelings for if they if they did exist for Robert Dudley, because she wasn't married to him. Why was she acting this way? And when he did find out that this was the case, he couldn't believe it. William, like most men of the period, believed that a woman could not rule alone. Um, most men of the period believed that women could not live alone, probably, uh, unfortunately. And therefore, finding a suitable husband for Elizabeth would have been expected. She was young. She was a queen. Her sister had ma- uh, had married. Um, Lady Jane Grey was married. But she could never have married Robert Dudley. And I think it's much to William's delight because the pair never really got on. And they often both battled for the queen's attention, although in different ways. Very, very different ways. William did not wholly discourage a Catholic match, and it's very important. For Protestant suitors were sparse. There wasn't many, and there wasn't many that were suitable. However, he did have his conditions that if the Queen should marry, and if her husband would, uh, was Catholic, that he would hold limited powers, much like uh, Mary I's reign, and that uh, he would have to either convert to Protest- uh, Protestantism entirely, or worship his own religion in private. So when it is declared that she wished to remain single, um, this has completely baffled William. This During the Tudor period, women were expected to fit a particular role of a wife, of a, of a mother. It didn't matter whether she was queen or not. So William wouldn't have understood that Elizabeth, Elizabeth wished to remain unmarried and childless and to reign. It didn't make sense to him because the reign itself depended on the succession and that dynasty's survival. And so to remain unmarried without any political alliance, to remain without a child to succeed you, it completely didn't make sense in the 16th century mind, especially a 16th century man's mind. And however much he pressed her to marry, he, he did try to support her, I suppose, in the best 
of his ability. He, co- he couldn't entirely understand her, but he, I suppose he himself had, by this time, he had uh, two children and a happy family life. So he couldn't understand why she would not want the same thing and why she wouldn't want to secure the future of her dynasty and her realm by making some foreign alliance and giving the kingdom a male heir. This was her, this was her legacy. This was her grandfather's legacy, her father's legacy, and he just didn't get it. Elizabeth is known to only have truly, really considered marriage openly in the late 1570s, early 1580s, during the negotiations. I think this was either the third or fourth French uh, negotiations of, of a match with the Duke of Anjou. He, he was the Duke of Alençon um, before. Um, his brother was also the Duke of Anjou. It's very confusing. <laughs> but William supported the match uh, to the Queen's disbelief and also relief telling her that the decision in the end, if she wished to marry the Duke of Anjou, which evidently, from, from what I read, she did, and he, he, the decision was entirely hers. But despite his support, many members of her council and, court, and, and other courtiers and factions opposed the match, and eventually the Queen crumbled. This is really important as well, because some would say that because of William and his relationship with the Queen and how they governed England together, that the Elizabethan court was factionist. And I just don't believe it, because when you come to the to the conclusion, uh, you know, to, to of her marriage negotiations with Duke of Anjou, there are factions. They're completely divided. They cannot decide. One faction says, no, she can't marry Catholic. One, one side says yes. And so this is evidence of factions created due to the Queen's marriage, due to the succession crisis, and due to the, the ever-growing issue of, which will come to later, of Mary and Scott. So for me, this shows that William was steadfast when it came to the security of the realm, the succession, and also the Queen's happiness, because he was willing to bend the rules a little about, you know, he, he was staunch Protestant, but she could have married a Catholic if, if they were willing to go with the rules and that he would have set out. It's also telling us close and personal relationship with the Queen because she trusted him for his advice and counsel above all others, even probably more than um, Robert Dudley. But during the late 1560s, William and Elizabeth's relationship struggled, and a struggle due to his pressing on the matter of her marriage and the succession. Elizabeth didn't want to hear it. She simply, she was completely wholly opposed to it, and she wasn't afraid of telling William that she was opposed to it. But during Parliament, in, in, I think it was um, the late Parliament of late 1560s. It was the topic of the most discussion and debate, and it was it was really evident that he believed that it was the Queen's duty to marry, and it was the duty of the Queen's Council and Parliament to select a suitable husband for the Queen, and that if she continued to refuse to marry, then they would have to choose a successor a successor for her. And this outraged Elizabeth because this is a completely different way of governing than, than her father. No one would have dared told Henry VIII that they were going to choose his heir if, if he didn't do something, if he didn't marry this person. But this is really, yes, it's the Parliament, yes, it's the Commons, yes, it's, it's, it's her councillors. But really what it is, it's a group of men telling a woman that if she doesn't do what she's, if she doesn't do what they want her to do, well, then they're going to do what they want to do and they're going to basically select an heir for her or at least have some sort of influence over who succeeds to the throne if she should die. This is literally because, simply because, William wanted to secure the Elizabethan state and the uh, Protestant religion that uh, represented it. Um, It wasn't, it was the Elizabethan state, but it was really, it wasn't really about Elizabeth entirely. It was about the Protestantism that 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 she brought and that he wanted to secure. 
So one of the reasons why William was so obsessed with Elizabeth's marriage and succession was the ever-growing threat of the Catholic Mary Stuart. Uh, Mary Stuart was the Queen of Scots and she was the Dowager Queen um, of France. And while she was in France as Queen Consort, though she did claim some sort of legitimacy over the, the Tudor throne, um, she posed much less of a threat to Elizabeth. Elizabeth's position and her throne while she was there. However, her return to England in 1561 and her later marriage to Lord Darnley, and Lord Darnley was both Mary and Elizabeth's cousin, and her marriage to him, which produced an male heir, later James VI and the first, this posed a serious, serious threat to Elizabeth, the, the Elizabethan regime the, uh, that William had worked so hard to secure. Mary had, obviously, for some time, openly declared claim to Elizabeth, her claim to Elizabeth's throne. And she had everything, or so it seems that Elizabeth did not. She had a husband, she had a son, she had created a, a dynasty. And so she thought that it was rightful that she either succeed Elizabeth or who knows if there was some plot and Mary was to, to gain from it, why not? But the one thing she did not have that Elizabeth did was a William Cecil. And for there was only one William Cecil. And I think that says a lot about why Elizabeth was so successful and unfortunately why for Mary, why she was not. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think she lacked that loyal support, didn't she, to, to kind of guide her and counsel her through these she tough did. moments. She, she did. Yeah, she didn't have what Elizabeth had. And it's so interesting because there are two queens on one island and they're so similar. They, they, they even they share blood. But the support for Elizabeth is, is what Mary could only have ever imagined i mean by the time she returns to scotland scotland is mostly a protestant country and she's known it's known that she's a catholic and so the minute she returns it's trouble so she doesn't have the support that base of or that elizabeth had elizabeth had that support even before the moment that she became queen mary didn't have that and i think that's unfortunate actually for her yeah, definitely. And I think the the love of her people, though it might sound a bit corny, but they knew her from a child, despite all the troubles and the whatever. This she was a familiar Absolutely. face, wasn't she? And a familiar she was a fa- yeah, yes. at court. So Elizabeth, I think, Elizabeth yeah. was she was a familiar face to, to her people. She she was not it's you can really understand the the, the, the Scottish ideology towards had a view towards Mary Queen of Scots. She's she's technically she she's French. She's yeah. a French woman who's our queen apparently is coming now over here and we're Protestants and she's Catholic and this is it. She she's mm. the queen. And where Elizabeth, you know, she by her mother's downfall and the disgrace of her of her family, she is the daughter of the king. And she uh, and you know, she's very like her father in many, many ways. And she she's a reminder, I suppose, of greater times, you know, uh, of the reign of, of good good King Henry the Eighth. <laughs> well, we we wouldn't really view him quite the same way now but um <laughs> yeah she's a reminder she's not only I can think of other adjectives to David to yeah, use for some, yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> um <laughs> yeah um we can have a totally other discussion on that yes that's well. right <laughs> <laughs> but yeah for me she, she represented everything that was English I, and Elizabeth herself actually said she was the most English queen of England there ever was or ever would be and it's true because you know her mother was actually English as well and that was very rare and um, for, for a queen usually they were they were princesses from, from foreign lands or whatever it may be and so she was right she was the most English queen there, there ever could have been at that time and 
this is why she had the support that Mary didn't. Yeah, absolutely. And presumably Cecil counseled to get rid of Mary. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I do actually, I actually have a quote here that oh, yes. I have with, um, from, <laughs> um, that I found um, something that William said to, uh, apparently uh, said or wrote to Elizabeth. Uh, he said, that, uh, quote, that the Queen of Scots indeed is and shall always be a dangerous person to your state. Yet there be degrees whereby the, uh, the danger may be more or less. If your majesty would marry, it should be less. And whilst you do not, it will increase. If her person be restrained, either here or at home in her own country, it will be less. If it be liberty, it will be greater. So what William is saying is, this is before any concept of killing Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, came about. But what he's saying here is, Mary is a danger to Elizabeth while she is literally on that island while she's away in france she she's she's a danger but she's not a threat that much of a threat as she is when she's literally on the british isles and william really had this vision from the beginning of i suppose creating a united british isles not the way we see it now as the united kingdom that's a stretch too far i think to say it's that that's why he envisaged but certainly true in terms of religion he wanted to unite the British Isles under under the Protestant faith. And so I, I really find that, you know, if I find it interesting the way he says, if we give her liberty, she she's she's much more dangerous. Yeah, I just I just think that it's it, it wasn't something personal. It's like it, he planted it, it, a seed it, there, didn't he, with that little <laughs> he did. that little statement. He did, yeah. yeah. Very clever. Absolutely. Yeah. Because if, if Elizabeth's anything like her father, once you plant something in his head, it's almost impossible to take it out again. This is <laughs> so it. Be careful it, it, this what you is say. It. Be Absolutely, this is it. And um, and he he likely knew that uh, the, yeah. the tutors. And um, really, if you had a high position and they trusted you, you could really have serious influence over the tutors. So yeah, it's obvious that for him, the one thing that he would have to do is is try get rid of Mary Queen of Scots, or at least find a way to uh, I suppose, take her liberty as queen away. As early as 1560, the, the young Mary Stuart came to Elizabeth's throne uh, through her grandmother, Margaret Tudor's line, became a real danger to Elizabeth's safety. And this is really genuine. It really is a danger to Liz- Elizabeth's safety, not because Mary Stuart is going to kill Elizabeth herself but, uh, or, or bring a war on her or anything like that at this stage, but it's, it's, it's because there are there is still so much you know dissent in England. The... I suppose the Catholics feel that Mary Stuart as a Catholic should be their queen. And so they're, they're willing, they're willing to do whatever it takes to make England Catholic again. And unfortunately for this, but that means it, it, there's a serious threat to her life and not only to her life, but the future of the Protestant religion in England. It's most likely Mary's religion that William is opposed to. We, we can't say he's opposed to her personally because really he doesn't really know who she is personally. Um, but again, Scotland is a Protestant country with a Catholic queen. So we can't say for sure if William knew that Mary's brain would end in turmoil. I mean, we know from our discussion that he's, he's always prepared, he's always watching, he's always ready, but he's not psychic. You know, he's, he, he can't tell that <laughs> um, her reign is going to end up badly. But he knew, what he did know was that if Elizabeth was to die without an heir, Mary would be proclaimed Queen of England. It was quite possible. And he had worked for a peaceful alliance with Scotland. And prior to Mary's arrival, it seemed that the British Isles may be, may be have been capable of finding peace 
through a shared religion. During Mary I's reign, for example, there was great tension with Scotland. And so William wanted to bring peace about. And the only way to do that was through their shared religion. So Mary's Catholicism really made that impossible. And the birth of her son made Elizabeth's position even more precarious. Again, this is nothing personal. Um, against Mary, but she's a serious threat. And so William finds it very, very difficult to ignore her. His goal to see Elizabeth marry and as well secure the Tudor dynasty really stemmed from the threat of Mary Stuart. Um, would he have been so preoccupied with, her, with Elizabeth's marriage if there was no Mary, Queen of Scots? We can't say, but certainly in William's mind, Elizabeth, it was, it, it was best for Elizabeth to find a husband simply due to, I mean, England is quite small. In, in Europe and it's it's not as powerful um, as, as Spain or France by the time uh, Elizabeth comes to the throne it, it's also pretty much bankrupt so by the 1560s the threat is too great of Mary Queen of Scots and in terms of her execution in 1587 for example he would have seen this as necessa- a necessary evil it's not that he was he was bloodthirsty or 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 any of them I suppose some might say Francis Walsingham was but again we, we can't say that for sure, but he would have seen it as a necessary evil to protect his queen and prevent England's return to Catholicism. And the only way to do that, unfortunately, was was to either imprison Mary Queen of Scots or to to um, have her executed. And of course, we know what happened with the Babington plot, and we know that it worked out quite quite well for William in the end. And by the time Mary is executed obviously that thread is gone but elizabeth is still childless and will not have a child certainly after that point so you've obviously spent a lot of time immersed in in william cecil's life and you know studying yeah, him yeah. and researching his his life and his career so if you had to sum him up david the the man i'm talking about the man i suppose behind the the politician the man the father yes. the husband what would you say about him he devoted his life and his career to the service of Elizabeth's government to, to the Elizabeth, Elizabethan state and to the Protestant regime that that, that represented. But if this is something that people don't see. They don't like unless you're reading or researching extensively. You don't you don't get that impression from William that he's actually a devoted husband to his wife, his second wife Mildred. Um, he had a warm and affectionate relationship with all of his children. He had been you know elevated to the to the title of Baron Burley in 1571, hence why we know him now as Lord Burley. And his son, his eldest son Thomas, from his first wife to uh, Mary Cheek was he was to inherit the title. But he also favoured his his other son, his his son um, Robert Cecil, and he trained him to inherit a different kind of, um, I suppose, legacy, family duty. And I think he likely had the closest relationship with his father out of all of William Cecil's children. And his relationship, this is because I think he put so much trust in him and they would have obviously, he, he worked under his father, so they would have spent so much of their time together. Um, William's relationship with Mildred was also warm and affectionate. And again, they probably fell in, eventually fell in love. But Mildred's very different to William. And I love how he gets, because I am technically a, a historian of, of, of women's history, first and foremost, as, as well as a social historian, we get speckles of Mildred and her personality and there's not many letters between them, but the ones that exist, are, are they're so telling. And I, I just think it's, it's brilliant. So she preferred a quieter life. She did not really, she didn't exactly like attending court. 
with her husband in the early years of their marriage, which, you know, at the time she would have been expected to do. And although Elizabeth favoured her, she much preferred to spend time in their many stately homes in the country rather than being at court. It's full of people, it's full of noise, it's full of smells. It's, you know, uh, William is always, you know, on duty with Elizabeth. So, you know, she didn't want to be there. She wanted to have her own household and have some power of her own, obviously. But nonetheless, she was a dutiful wife and though she preferred to spend time in the countryside, she was rarely away from William's side. He had always convinced her to, to, to be by his side, that he needed her, and he really did need her. And in fact, there's so few letters between the couple because they were so often in each other's company that they were, they were so rarely apart. And I think that it says a lot about their relationship. And um, we don't know much of Mildred's opinions on politics, whether she had any, although I think she certainly would have. Um, we have no idea of her opinion on William's career and position in politics in general. But, you know, we do know that their relationship was, was quite a warm one and William referred to her as, her as his dear wife uh, in their letters. And it is known that they shared um, intellectual interests. So she was, also, she was well educated and it was also said she was um, steadfast and she was not a woman to suffer fools. So take from that what you will. <laughs> he was also really close to his mother, who also had a very long life. He was very close to her for most of his life. And unfortunately, he lost his daughter Anne and his mother in the same year. And the deaths of two of the most important women in his life. This must have been a real blow. And William was already aging and unwell by this time. But luckily, his daughter's own daughters, his, his two grandchildren, came into his care. And he no doubt relished having them around. I'm sure I'm sure he loved it. I loved it. You can imagine him um, when he had some time spending time with his grandchildren and his, and his, his other children and, you know, being a really a warm father and grandfather. And as he aged, Robert took over much more of the work that William was responsible for. Um, his, his sons really took the reins in the, in the late 1580s. He really wasn't able for it anymore. He, his duty to the Queen, was, it, it, was, it was always there. Well, he, he, was getting, he was getting slower and iller as time went on. And then Mildred, unfortunately, died in 1589, some years before William. We know that he had a second daughter, Elizabeth, and she was likely named in honour of the Queen. But we do not know much about her life, other than she was born in 1564 at Tussle House, and that she married William Wentworth in 1582 and she had her father's approval of this marriage. William's eldest son would eventually inherit the barony of Burley in 1598 when William died and he was later created the Earl of Exeter. So he inherited Burley House in Stamford which we all know is you know a glorious memory of William Cecil um, in Burley House but it's it, you know it's kind of sad William survived his, his two of his daughters and his wife and he only had his two sons uh, by 1598. And though obviously he had a warm relationship with them and he had grandchildren and he had reason to go on, he did, he died, um, I think after either a heart attack or a stroke on the 4th of August, 1598. And therefore his son Thomas took the reins of, the, the you know, legitimate reins of the name, the legacy, the house, property, whatever it may be, title. And Robert Sassel himself inherited his father's political position. Wow, what an incredible life. That's just, I just marvel at life. what he saw and, you know, the, the changes that he saw, the changes that he was part of and, and that A he helped of, bring absolutely. about. Yeah, it's just outstanding. Yeah, incredible. Now, did you, are there any final comments? A couple of times you mentioned the Burley legacy, you mentioned it in your opening sort of comments. Is there any Anything that yes. you want to, to add about that um, before we wrap up here? 
Yeah, well, I suppose for me, Birdie Legacy really and Dynasty really is what's important about my research and my book to come. For me, the Birdie Legacy can be summed up in many ways. You know, firstly, his sons, they continued to settle political and dynastic legacy in line, ensuring his memory and his, his line would endure his family name. But it's also the way in which the Elizabethan state was governed. It really, how it is now, it really owes much to William's genius. And yeah, this can be really seen in how Great Britain is, is governed today. It, it's not entirely, obviously, all to do with William Tesla's ideology. Uh, and certainly there's hundreds of years between today's Britain and British Isles of William's time. But I suppose it's his dedication and his service to the English state that is really, it's within, it's within us now. It's within British people now. It's, it's those who serve the state now. It's within the Queen now, Elizabeth II now, and those around her. And, and I think that's, that's so important. And suppose that was inherited by William's son, um, Robert Cecil, and later Lord Salisbury. Robert, he was like his father in so many ways, you know, and, and, and it's because of him, I suppose, that we, 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 Britain is in many ways the way it is now because he served the Stuarts, uh, James I of England. So he was politically astute. He was highly intelligent. He was loyal and dedicated to the preservation of the Protestant religion and, and the English state. But he was much more ruthless than his father, William. And, and that's why, I think, politically, why um, the Cecil legacy and the dynasty is so important. When we think of William, we don't think of his legacy the, the way, the, uh, certainly um, the, the way we should. We often imagine him personally as well as a cold, you know, stern, politically astute, non-nonsense, kind of individual but this is only one side to him you know he was a kind friend a confidant he was generous to those who he felt deserved it his loyalty to the queen both on a professional and personal level cannot be denied but again coming back to that human side we forget sometimes that he was a human being as was you know his son and they were they were men with, with emotions and, and with lives and with loved ones and families. And William was a loyal, loving husband. Um, he never took a mistress or strayed from his marital vows. His relationship with his children was affectionate as could be for the period. But they all inherited his sense of duty, his intelligence, his deep loyalty to the service of, of the English state and the sovereign. And it also has to be said that William's legacy is due to the fact that he carved out his own success. He carved out his own dynasty and therefore carved out his own legacy. Without William Cecil, for example, there, there couldn't have been Elizabeth the way we know her. There would have been no Gloriana. So Elizabeth's reign isn't really, it isn't often remembered for the men that stood behind the throne. For example, William and um, Walsingham. It's, it's always remembered for Elizabeth herself, which is the way, in the way it should be. Um, she was queen. But every victory and tragedy experienced by Elizabeth was witnessed by the man closest to her. And this man wasn't her father, he wasn't her brother, and he wasn't even her husband, but he was William Cecil. Yeah, I think there's some very appropriate closing comments on, on Cecil. And I, I think this has been a fabulous conversation. I feel myself personally like I know him a little bit better and he's become yeah. a little bit more three-dimensional <laughs> now for me, which is is great. That's exactly I, I, what I we hope want. so. That's that's what I'm that's yeah, what I, I want. Yeah, so to <laughs> exactly. And and I absolutely am looking forward to your book because obviously, you know, lots of those things you've brought up can be teased out there and we can and we can delve deeper. Yeah. So that is fantastic. Now I can't let you go just 
right now, David. You're going to have to hang on for a moment so that I can... I'll, I'll say as long as you like. <laughs> <laughs> so that I can ask you the questions that I like to close episodes with. We call it 10 to go, basically just to get to know you a little bit better. So just 10 quick questions, nothing tricky, don't worry. <laughs> the first one, you've said you live in Dublin. So what's yes. an inspirational place that you like to visit close to home? Close to home in, in Dublin. Um, well, I, I live in Dublin, but uh, I'm actually from uh, a town called the Wicklow. But in Dublin, I suppose my one place is I, I adore Dublin Castle. And I've been many, many times. And um, it's also surrounded by, you know, beautiful gardens and beautiful restaurants. And it's somewhere where I like to go and, and I just find peace there. In terms of uh, my hometown, Wicklow, it's much quieter and I, I find great peace there. You know, I, I, I live in a city, but I'm a country boy and I, I, love, I love nature and I, I, I love long walks in the forest and, and I love the beach. And Wicklow really, for me, my hometown, brings, it brings all of that for me. And what was the last film, or if not a film, um, a show, maybe a series that you watched? Um, I'm actually at the moment I'm watching uh, usually I, I always watch something historical it's, you know it, it never really leaves me I don't know if you're the same but <laughs> yeah. I'm always trying to find something along those lines uh, and so for me I'm watching actually at the moment Barbarian oh, which is on it's on Netflix and um, so mm-hmm. it's uh, really about the uh, the third legion uh, the Roman legion in Britain um, and the reaction of the uh, of the native uh, Britain to to I suppose and they're being there <laughs> so it's uh it's I, I i really i'm really enjoying it okay i might have to give that a go because i'm i i really do like roman history <laughs> me roman too times. i i absolutely i absolutely adore it i, I just finished actually um domina and oh, um, yeah. which is a uh, it's a it's another series it's a roman series about uh livia the wife of i think she's the wife of augustus augustus caesar i think um, but um, again, I love Roman history as well, like you and these, these shows, these two, they're very alike, both of the shows, and I just love them. All right. Well, I'm going to have a look for those. And what about a book that you've read more than once? Oh, a book I've read more than once. Well, anyone who knows me will know that my, one of my favorite authors is Sarah Dunant. Um, and I love, uh, I love all of her books. But I suppose the one I've read the most is In the Company of the Courtesan. And from my, um, my posts on social media... <laughs> You probably know that I I I love uh, I love the stories of courtesans and um, it's it's one of my areas of study. It's a, it's another actually another project I'm working on is something to do with um, the history of courtesans and so I have to say it's an it's a novel but it's um it's it's one of my favorites and I've read it more than once. I'm currently reading though The Queen's Arrival by Anne Ooh. O'Brien and yes. that's about you know Cecily Neville, Duchess of York. Um, that's a good one actually. I've read Edward that one. Before. It's yeah. very very good. Yeah. Fabulous. All right. And what is a quality or maybe a couple of qualities, if you can't choose one, that it, that you rate really highly in a friend? I don't know if they're the same thing, um, but truth and loyalty uh, for me, it, it always, it, for me, it's always tell me the truth. Tell me how something is. Yes. That's really, really important to me. And also loyalty as a friend for me is it's the, it's, it's the foundation of friendship, I think. Great. And what is a country that you haven't visited that you'd like to to visit? <laughs> Australia. <laughs> it's more, more of a, con- it's a continent. Oh, yay. <laughs> Australia. Awesome. Yes, come um, to Sydney and we yeah, can go out and uh, have a nice time. <laughs> absolutely. I've never been. I've, my, I've always wanted to go. Hmm. Where else? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite well traveled. So I'm trying to think. Oh, uh, Japan, very good. Probably. You're lucky. Japan. 
Japan and Japan, China yeah. probably. Um, yeah, yeah probably uh, both. Never been to Asia in ge- in general, so it def- for me, you know, definitely. You get extra bonus points for mentioning Australia. Very good. And <laughs> <laughs> brownie points, brownie points, brownie points, exactly. <laughs> and what is a new skill that you'd like to learn? I suppose I'd, ser- I'd love to learn a new language. I'd love I'd love to learn Portuguese fluently. My my husband is Brazilian, so it's, right, yeah. Portuguese is his first language. And um, but um, I do try, but I, I find it so hard to find the time to actually get lessons and to really at the moment really make it a good attempt at it it's just I'm so busy so when everything is when the dust has settled that's something that I want to do for sure yeah absolutely language is always um, very important I think and 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 if you're having a you know a tough week a bad day whatever how what do you do to cheer yourself up well one thing I suppose when, when I'm having a bad morning I'm not best morning person suppose for me the one thing is to really just have a coffee and a chat with my friends either in yeah. work or outside work one of my my best pals and for me if I'm having a bad week it's, it's talking about it and it's, it's having a coffee with a friend and really just that's getting so it good. out and I, I always feel better afterwards always yeah I think that's really good advice because I think with lots of issues come from bottling up don't they and and especially I think yeah. for men find that hard to to kind of talk so that's really great yeah I, I'm, I'm not like that at all you, <laughs> you talk. Know who say, I'm not one I'm not one for bossing it up and I'm not one for uh I, I'm definitely I love I love a chat so yeah oh that's good that's really good and you're obviously going into some cooler weather now we're going in the opposite direction but uh, what's what's a yes, favorite comfort yes. food for you my favorite comfort food oh my goodness I like spicy food. I like I like hot curries. And um, so for during the winter, anything spicy really for me will be my, my go to will be like a curry or a spicy tomato soup or something like that during this weather. It's very, very cold at the moment here. And yes. um, it's getting colder by the day um, and winter will be upon us. Yeah, I think you need <laughs> so it. You need me, the spice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anything with spice in it or or something warm for me is, is great. And what is your drink of choice if a friend's taking you out for a drink? Probably an Aperol Spritz is my favorite. Nice. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. I like that. Um, and I do, I do like a Pinot Grigio, a glass of Pinot Grigio. We all do. But my, my, my one to, my go-to, you know, if, I'm, if I've had a long week is an Aperol Spritz. And lucky last, what is something that you're looking forward to in the next, say, 12 months? So many things. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> um, obviously, I'm about to uh, complete uh, my my master's. That's something I, I'm I'm really looking forward to and getting you know not not getting out of the way, but really you know feeling that accomplishment, yes. that achievement. It's also my my other book, uh, which I think I've discussed with you prior to this conversation. My book about uh, Elizabeth and her yes. um, courtship with the Duke of Anjou, which is still in discussion with um, a, a couple of publishing houses. I'm not. Uh, nothing is set in stone I haven't decided yet and I'm I'm kind of in that I suppose in limbo at the moment with yeah. that on, on where it's going to go and what I want but um that's something that's exciting and hopefully within the next year or so something will, will come of that and then of course my book on the settles uh, um uh, the, I suppose the settled dynasty which is um due to go to my my, my editor in April of 2022 so that's my, my first submission of the book it'll that that'll be the end and then we'll see where we go from there. So for me, that's something that's really exciting. Yeah, that's a lot of exciting, exciting things to look forward yes. to. That's wonderful. Yeah. And the very last thing I promise you, and I'll let you get on with your day, is our Tudor takeaway. So I ask all my guests to make a recommendation. Sometimes it's a book or a show or a movie. Do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? 
Yes, I mean, there's a couple of books, for example, Connor, if you want to take anything away from this, uh, from, from, from this talk, this chat, and if you really want to look into the life of, of William Cecil Ward Burley and his relationship to Queen and his career and his family and his life, and um, there's two books uh, that I, I would recommend. So the first is Conyers Reed by Conyers Reed. It's Lord Burley and the Queen and Queen Elizabeth. And the second is by my all-time fa- favourite, uh, Stephen Alfred, the early Elizabethan polity, William Cecil and the British succession crisis. Um, and that's definitely one of my favourites. Something else I'd love to recommend is uh, the YouTube channel um, Forgotten Lies. And that's I believe that's owned and ran by Nico Waters. I hope I'm saying that correctly. But this is a channel that looks into the lives of, you know, interesting characters of history, uh, mainly from between the 17th and 20th century. So it's, you know, it's not quite Tudor. But um, for anyone who's interested in history in general, I, I find that it's, it's, uh, it's brilliant. Fantastic. You've given us lots of things to, to go and check out after the show. And thank you so much, David, so. for sharing your expertise and for coming on the show and talking Tudors with us. Thank you so much for having me. I've had so much fun. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music